Guys, we're going to start with a, a video. Uh, this is four minutes long. It's a great introduction to the message this morning. So uh, sit back and uh, enjoy. But honestly, I don't fear that this is a secular society as much as it is becoming a pagan one. Pa! Would that were true? At least a true pagan would give Christians something to work with. Throughout history, it was the pagans who were most readily converted to Christianity. You don't believe England's falling into paganism, then? <laughs> well, until we see Parliament opened by the slaughtering of a garlanded bull in the <laughs> House of Lords, or, or cabinet ministers leaving sandwiches in Hyde Park as an offering for dryads. <laughs> I don't believe we need worry about paganism. <laughs> you really have let the situation get out of hand, haven't you? I, I, I don't know what happened. It's obvious what happened. Through this girl and her disgusting family, the patient is now getting to know more Christians every day, and very intelligent Christians, too. Too many for me to handle alone. You're not alone. Each one has his own tempter, and we may need a counsel between us to assess the situation. Hmm. But you can be sure that for a long time it will be quite impossible to remove spirituality from his life. Which leaves me with what, uncle? Obviously, we must corrupt it. No doubt you have often practiced transforming yourself into an angel of light as a parade ground exercise. Yes, I have. Now is the time to do it in the face of the enemy. The world and the flesh have failed us. A third power remains. Spiritual corruption. And success of this third kind is the most glorious of all. A spoiled saint, a Pharisee, an inquisitor, or a magician makes better sport in hell than a mere common tyrant or narcissist. Well, um, what do you suggest? Looking round at your patient's new friends, I find that the best point of attack would be the borderline between theology and politics. Several of his new friends are very much alive to the social implications of their religion. That in itself is a bad thing, but good can be made out of it. How so? You insist on being spoon-fed, don't you? Let's return to the conversation and note the views of the one who spoke a moment ago about paganism. Look, for my money, Christianity began to go off the rails very early on. What do you mean, off the rails? It departed from the core teachings of Jesus. People began adding to the simplicity of what he taught, twisting it all up. Anyone who looks at the historical Jesus will see the essence of pure Christian tradition. What did this historical Jesus teach? It's clear from the Gospels that he was all for empowering the common man, rising up and throwing off the shackles of the rich. So you're saying Jesus was the Karl Marx of the first century? <laughs> to put it simply, yes. Good heavens, I never thought of it like that. Yeah, do you see? The historical Jesus, for some, is very Marxian, operating along revolutionary lines. Whereas it wasn't so long ago that we constructed a historical Jesus on purely liberal and humanitarian lines. The advantages of these constructions, which we intend to change every 30 years or so, are manifold. Are they? 
Um, in what way? In the first place, they all tend to direct men's devotions to something which does not exist. For each historical Jesus is unhistorical. You guys recognize that? How many are new? Does that ring any bells for anybody? Yeah. Uh, Screw Tape Letters C.S. Lewis is actually one of his best loved books. He wrote it originally for serial. It was published in uh, magazines, you know, uh, increment by increment. When they finally published the book, it went through eight printings uh, in the first year. It was so popular, both sides of the pond. And what you've got there is Screw Tape, who's that older, bigger, wiser demon. And he's schooling his protege, who's his younger nephew, Wormwood. So guys, if, if there is a real screw tape, or if that represents anything along the lines of reality, and one demon educates schools and forms another, I wonder what they're talking about. I wonder if we sat in their classroom, what would we be learning? How, how would demons go about uh, confusing or beguiling or deceiving uh, somebody, let's say, back in Lewis's day, or maybe back before that. And do you guys think it's possible? Probably not, right? Is it possible that you and I today could both face spiritual deception and maybe even fall into holes along those lines ourselves? Is it possible that we're patients in a real-life story in which spiritual entities are trying to deceive Either they're patients in the book, which is great. You're patient. Are we patient? And are we being influenced? And if we are, do we know it? And by the way, deception by its very nature means that when it's occurring, you usually don't know what's going on, right? That's a, an introduction. I thought this was brilliant. I loved this, this intro. To this morning's message, we're going to be in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1-5. through 5, And we're in still in the series, God's House. And... If you remember last time at the end of chapter 3, Paul closed with a very cryptic verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 16, and it was called a hymn to Christ. And basically, it just said right in the middle of this epistle, Paul writes to his younger protege, Timothy, about what's true of the church, the household of faith. The center of the whole epistle is who Jesus is and what He did. You remember that Jesus uh, was manifested in the flesh what, what's the reason for the incarnation? Man was created for fellowship with God, but sinned and spiritually died, fell from that fellowship, no longer had face-to-face accountability, enjoyment of God. And so Jesus, God the Son, comes to earth in our flesh to die for our sins, to rise from the dead. That hymn said that He was uh, declared righteous in His resurrection, and He now shares that same righteousness with us. The Gospel. So, Paul closed chapter 3 saying the truth that the church upholds, the center around family life in the household of faith, has everything to do with the person the work of Jesus. So you slide one verse later into chapter 4, and now you find that inside and outside the household of faith, there is in fact spiritual opposition to the truth the church is meant to know and to communicate to ourselves, to each other, into those outside as well. So we'll see this five verses in 1 Timothy 4. I'm going to read from the ESV. That's your pew Bible as well. So we've gone from the hymn of Christ to this. Paul says, Now the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, 
expressly says, there's no confusion on this, there's no ambiguity, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving for it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. So Paul says here, no question about this, no confusion, something's going to happen and it's this, some are going to leave the faith and they're going to devote themselves to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So the first question is, who are these guys? Who are the guys who are going to go from the faith? And remember, the, the faith, this is orthodoxy. This is who is Jesus? What did He do? What's our hope of salvation? What's the essential truth of the church? What's the message that we communicate to ourselves in the world? What's that all about? They're going to leave that. They're going to leave the faith. So who are these guys? What's true of them? What's characteristic of them? You know, I think most of us typically like to think the best of others. Just as a practice, I like to practice this as a discipline. I tend to be negative. I don't want to unnecessarily think negatively of other people. So I might read this and think, these guys that are departing from the faith, they're probably well-intentioned and then they're sincere and they're just a little off the tracks, maybe. But that's not what Paul says. Look there at verse 1. He says the guys that are leaving the faith, the teachings about Jesus... He says they have devoted themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. They're devoted, they're committed to a new message. This hasn't been happenstance. They're not victims of someone or something. They've made a conscious decision to leave orthodoxy, to leave the faith, the person work of Jesus for something else. They're committed to it. And also, look at verse 2. They're, they're not only actively devoted to another message, but he says this spreads through the insincerity of liars. So we say of some people, right, they're sincere, they're sincerely wrong. These guys are not sincere. In fact, the Greek word is the, the same word for hypocrisy. These guys are hypocrites. And they will put on a mask and they'll play a role if they can get something out of it. They're insincere. And they're liars. That's pseudo-words. False words. So they're guys who put on a mask. They're insincere. And if their lips are moving, they're lying. They are lying liars and they're insincere. And the last he says here, their consciences are seared. Do you guys uh, get your grill in the backyard going in the summer and you get it really hot and what do you do? You sear the steak, you sear the chicken, and you do that intentionally because you're, you're making that outside surface hard by, by cooking it really fast so you're keeping all the juices in. If we sear a steak, that's a good thing. If you sear a conscience, it's not. In Ephesians 4, Paul talks about pagans who, who are lost in a kind of spiritual darkness. And he said there's this process by which he says there they develop a calloused heart. And you know, if you work with a shovel a long time, slowly the friction of the shovel handle, or whatever, on your palm or on your thumb or your finger, it slowly develops a callus. That's a slow process. Well, searing is a very, very quick version of that same thing. You know, if you brand a cow, 
you take this very hot metal, right? You press it on its living flesh and it burns it. it and it, it burns the nerves. At that spot, that cow can't feel anything anymore. And that living flesh is now burned and it won't respond to anything like it should. Guys, these guys have seared their own conscience. They've made an active volitional choice. They're insincere. They're hypocrites and they're liars. And they are now beyond feeling related to the things of God and the faith. So these aren't sincere guys who somehow got lost along the way. Paul says, later times this is what's going to happen and this is what they're like. This is who they are. If you're in school with screw tape, it's insincere liars dull to the truth that are the ones that are forsaking Christ. Preaching another Gospel or another Jesus. Intentionally, eyes wide open, forsaken faithfulness to Christ and to the household of God. So, do you guys, do you guys really believe, by the way, do you believe in little red men with little red horns and pointy tails? Who, who, is there a real screw tape and a real wormwood? Do we really believe in this day and age in demons? In devils? That opening song was great, wasn't it? Martin Luther. They're spiritual entities alive in the world and they've been around forever. So Paul says, behind the guys, behind the human voices that are putting forth another gospel, another message, Paul says there are spiritual entities that are deceiving. There are teachings, doctrines that demons are coming up with and selling. So behind the human mask, there's a spiritual entity sowing this deceit, these false messages, false Christs, false Jesuses. Deceitful spirits, Paul calls them. He also calls them demons. You know, if you go, interestingly, if you go to the origin of demons, the Scripture is a little ambiguous. If you go to Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, you see prophetic passages that start by speaking about human kings, kings of Babylon, king of Tyre, but it looks like as they're describing these guys that they're speaking past those humans to someone bigger and greater than they are, and it looks like it's Satan himself. And it looks like Ezekiel especially looks like the fall of Satan and the fall of demons who before the fall were simply angels like the rest of the angels in heaven. The Ezekiel says uh, to the king of Tyre, you were the covering cherub, but pride was found in you. Pride is the essential sin of the devil. And so Satan fell and apparently took some of the host of heaven with him. So do we believe in demons, in devils? Well, sure do. And they're throughout the Scriptures. You know, when the Bible winds down in Revelation, demonic activity is at its height. You read 2 Thessalonians 2, read Revelation from 6 on, demons are part and parcel of what's coming. The deception that's actively at work in the world at that time. But guys, if you go to the opening chapters of the Bible, Genesis 3, who's there? Satan. He's unannounced. It's kind of odd. That's, you say, I wish there was greater clarity on where these guys came from, how this all came to pass. By the way, were devils part of the creation of the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1? Some think so. That's not my tendency. But the Scripture, again, it's ambiguous. It's not clear. But you get in Genesis 3... In the temptation account, this, this entity is talking out of a tree to Satan, lying to her and tempting her. And from there on, the reality of Satan and his followers is just a given in the Scriptures. Absolutely a given. The story of Job opens with God having a conversation with 
Satan. Uh, in Jesus' day, when you go through the Gospels, you see Jesus confronting demons throughout the land of promise. Is that interesting? Among the covenant people of God, Jesus is casting out demons from Jews. In fact, he calls one this daughter of Abraham being oppressed by the devil. Is it possible that people in the household of faith today could be affected, could be influenced, could be deceived by demons? Probably so. Uh, Paul confronts demonic activity through the book of Acts. Jesus calls in John 8, Satan the father of lies, so that when he speaks, he's lying and he's simply true to his nature. And what's true of Satan is true of demons. It's true of those who follow him, those spirit entities who are part of his cosmic rule. So Satan's fallen angels, deceiving spirits, are leading some people away from real faith in Jesus. And then the question comes, think of the Jews again, could this really happen in the church though? Is that possible that that could actually occur in the household of faith that's holding up, right? The church is the pillar. We're holding up the person work of Jesus. We're the foundation on this earth for truth. Would it be possible that that kind of deception could actually occur in the household of faith, in Jesus' church on the earth, is that possible? Because I'm thinking no. I don't know. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11 if you've got a minute. Listen to what Paul says. This is the first century. This is Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. So when Paul dies, let's say around 66, 67. This letter written in the 50s or so, let's just say. This is the early church. Paul's writing to the church he founded. He's writing to Christians that came to faith through his testimony. But listen to what he says of leaders in his day in the church in Corinth. Speaking of leadership in Corinth, he says, such men are false apostles. They're, pseudo, they're lying apostles. They're variations on the theme, but they're not true. He says they are deceitful, same word in 1 Timothy, deceitful workmen. They disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. They're not, but that's what they say. He says Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it's no surprise if his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, just as you saw in the opening video. Paul is calling leaders in the church at Corinth demonically inspired teachers in the household of faith in the first century in the early days of the church while he's still around to confront them. If you look later, much later, John lived a long life and a couple decades at least later. In 1 John, listen to what John says there. Uh, don't believe every spirit, every teaching, every spirit behind the teachings uh, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is in John's lifetime. This is in the very early days of the church. He says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And guys, again, this is a cryptic phrase that represents the Gospel. The Spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. God the Son became man, took on our humanity. Why? Because men were lost in sin died for the sins of the world, rose for our justification. It's the Gospel again. So the Spirit of, that confesses Christ is from God. He says, but every spirit, and this is important, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, 
This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Guys, you'll meet many people in your lives. You probably have family, friends right now that they believe in another religion. They believe in another way of life. They deny who Jesus is. John says that is the spirit that's not from God. It is the spirit of the Antichrist. Antichrist, anti here can mean one of two things or it can mean both. It could mean instead of or it could mean opposed to. And probably does mean both. If you can, Jesus says repeatedly, 1 John, John's Gospel, if you believe the Son, you believe in the Father. If you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father either. Guys, anybody who's spreading a message about ultimate reality that denies Jesus, John says that is the Spirit. They are communicating the Spirit of Antichrist. It is spiritual deception. It's nothing less than that. If you go to 2 Peter and Jude, and these are parallel epistles probably written about the same time and they have a very common theme. You see the same thing in both letters. Listen to what Peter says. This is about leaders in the church in his day. Peter died about the same time Paul did, executed by Rome. Listen to what he said was going on in his day. He said, leaders in the church have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They have hearts trained in greed. Are these sincere guys? He says, uh, they have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor. We won't go into this too much, but Balaam was a prophet in the Old Testament who was willing to sell his soul and his message for some money. He was greedy. And Paul, uh, Peter says, these guys are just like Balaam, who loved gain from wrongdoing. These guys are promising others freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. That was true in Peter's day. Do you think this might be true in our day too? Is it possible that you could go into a church that says they're Christian and be surrounded by leaders who are in it for a buck or in it for what they can get from other people? Jude says essentially the same thing. He said, I wanted to write to you about one thing, but I realized I needed to say something entirely different about the faith that was delivered once because some people are already, in Jude's day again, first century, they're already trying to teach you something that isn't the faith. It's not about Jesus. It's not the central pillar of truth that the church holds up. He said certain people have crept in unnoticed. They've crept in. They've snuck in. We didn't re recognize them when they came into the church. They're ungodly. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. They deny their only Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, they're hidden reefs in your love feast. These are like, you know, a reef. If you drive a boat over and you don't see the reef and you hit it, it wrecks your boat. Well, these guys are wrecking lives because they don't realize what's there and who these guys are. Satan and demons, guys, are as comfortable and at home in churches and religious circles as, as any place. I, I loved, uh, we'll wind down with a great quote from that, but that's what Screwtape was selling Wormwood on in that video. Religion's as good as anything else. If you're just trying to alienate people from God and the source of life, anything will do. And religion's as good as anything else. So when these guys leave, if they're leaving the faith, what are they selling? What's the message they're selling instead of Jesus? Instead of the centrality of the personal work of Jesus, what are these guys teaching? What are they diverting themselves to? And some of these letters, you see there's this, uh, there's this movement towards sensuality. And this comes up in the letters, the epistles to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 also. But that's not what was originally being sold. You know, humans are inherently religious. Do you know everybody knows there's a God? 
It doesn't matter if someone says I'm an atheist. There are no real atheists, right? Because everyone has inherently the knowledge of God. Paul says in Romans 1, an atheist has to do this with the knowledge of God. You know what they do? Paul says we suppress the truth. Everyone knows there's a God. There's, There's no question on this. Everyone knows there's a God. There are no real atheists. There's just people who say this about God. Nope. Don't believe in Him. Don't recognize Him. Fail to say there's a God. So religious people inherently so because we know they're... There's somebody bigger than us. We come and go on the scene of life, right? Stream of time, we're just little specks. We didn't start it. We don't finish it. So there's something else bigger than us at work. So if we don't want God to be the answer, we suppress the truth. Or if we don't want Yahweh, the God of the Bible, Jesus, we suppress that truth. And what do we do next? Paul says in Romans 1.23, we exchange. So we suppress the truth. Push that down. Now we've got to have something to replace it, so we exchange it. He says, we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. Romans 1 is in the context of, of pagan idolatry, and we're thinking here of statues that people were worshiping back in the day. But remember also that the culture that the Gospel first came to was principally philosophically underwritten by a Greek worldview. And the Greek worldview said, What we really admire and aspire to are the forms, the eternal unseen spiritual forms from which everything on earth derives its existence and its form. That that earth is like the shadow life, the reality is the unseen spiritual life. So if you believe that, you say, earthly things, they're not that good. The body, the things of the body, it's not that good. So one of the forms in the Greek uh, culture was asceticism. So if I do away with things related to the body, I'm, I'm a higher person. I've, I've risen more towards that eternal, unseen, spiritual reality. And that's what you see going on. Here especially, they're saying in verse 3, they forbid marriage and they require abstinence from foods. That's what Paul says the guys in Ephesus were selling. It was a form of asceticism. Do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. I'll visit this in just a second in Colossians 2. But that's what they were being told. That was the exchange. It's not about Jesus. It's about you being this religious mystic or ascetic. You're going to get rid of things. Don't touch those things. Don't eat those things. Don't do those things. That was the early message here. This, when I hear this today, I think of Roman Catholicism. Priests that don't marry. Back in the day when I was a kid, you didn't eat meat on Friday. For the life of me, I never knew why, but we didn't. It was tuna fish every Friday. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians, which was written near the same time as 1 Timothy. He says this, Colossians 2, which is one of the best passages in the New Testament on religion versus true spiritual faith. He says, see that no one takes you captive by philosophy. This isn't the truth ultimately, by philosophy. Empty deceit, deceitful spirits, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Elemental spirits of the cosmos, the world system that Satan and his henchmen rule. And then he says, they're telling you things about food and drink, festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths. They're talking about worshiping angels and asceticism. He said their message is don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. 
Now guys, this was a message. This is a religious message some churches still preach today. We would typically frame it in the terms of legalism. A form of legalism. But listen to what Paul concludes. He said, these have indeed, these teachings that say basically be hard on yourself, deny yourself, be more religious, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. You know, No, 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 basically. He said it appears religious, it appears wise, but it promotes self-made religion and asceticism, severity to the body, but at the end of the day has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Guys, if I'm walking in my sinful fleshly nature and I, I, I say, you know what, I'm not going to eat that, I'm not going to do that, what, what element of my sinful self is elevated? Then I'm proud, aren't I? I'm proud of my achievements. This just is a transfer of one form of sin for another. It doesn't matter. So they're forbidding marriage and foods, which Paul says, and we'll close later on this note, that God created and was therefore good. Isn't this interesting? You know, the devil is always trying to sell this, that God is keeping something good from you. And what I offer you is better. That's always the temptation. God's holding out, I offer something better. And Paul's saying, well, what you'll get from... There is no better. There is no better. What God created, He created is good. It's worth having. Now, what do you think's going on today? Do we... Does this culture... Do you think is this the hole we fall into? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? I don't, I'm not tempted in these. I don't know if you guys are. I don't think this is our culture. Right? Different things appeal to different cultures at different times. And I don't think people, Christians or others, in this time and, and place, I don't think we're tempted with asceticism. But what else might we be tempted in? What other ways today might people be successful in sowing both in the culture and in the church deception that takes people away from the faith, away from Christ? So this is what I'm thinking. Communism... Atheistic naturalism, evolution, the new atheists, you got Sam Harris here. The new atheists, what's new about atheism? What's new about rejecting, suppressing the knowledge of God? These guys are sharp, by the way. Um, Christopher Hitchens was another guy. In very many ways, very likable also. Likable people. But they're saying, they're selling a bill of goods. And guys, atheists have a religion just like anybody else do. If you say, what does religion speak to? Religion tells us how we got here, where we came from, the purpose or meaning in life, and what happens after death. That's what religion addresses. What's, what's the big picture? right? And an atheist has a big picture just like a Christian does, don't they? They say that the world is all there is, matter is all that exists. You are the end of a process of randomless, purposeless interactions of matter. Your life, meaning in life means there's no meaning in life. And when you die, your molecules go back and join the eternal matter cosmos. That's religion. How did I get here? What's the purpose and meaning in life? And what happens after I die? It's religion. The new atheists are selling an anti-Christ message that is religious in nature. Most of these guys don't follow this through to the end because if what they're selling is true... There's, why do they even get up and try and convince people? Why bother? There's, why? Because life is meaningless. What informs their desire to go out and tell people that life is meaningless? Yeah. Ken's doing this. The money. Yeah. Greedy. Self-gain. 
I'm getting something out of it in the moment. But you see, philosophically, there's no altruistic reason for atheists to sell their message. There's no, there's no necessary or logical reason. So that's a big, that's huge, guys, in our day. And all the, the, the materialistic arguments today that will tell you that we're the product of chance and evolution over time, that's an antichrist message. It's deceptive. It's doctrines of demons. Cults, Christian and otherwise, there's lots of cults today. Up here you've got the Mormon angel. Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses do not believe in the Jesus of the Bible. They have left the faith. Nor do they believe that God saves us by grace through faith in Jesus, which is the Gospel. It's a works-oriented salvation. They are anti-Christ in their message. So is Islam. You know, one of the things that happens... Have you ever found yourself saying, why can't I convince someone of the truth of the Gospel? How can they believe that? But you know what it comes down to, in part. Now, our souls and our minds are darkened, right? Intentionally. We sin. We're alienated from God. Some of us want to stay that way. But guys, there's spiritual energy behind these teachings. There's spiritual energy. It's not merely human thought. There's spiritual energy energy behind these things so these people are being led down the path by a pied piper so those under the influence of screw tape and the real demons like him guys they are politicians they are scientists they are pastors they are priests they are imams they are your friends they are my family they are your neighbors they are the people you work with and go to school with. We live in the cosmos, the world, and Satan rules this cosmos. And the message about Jesus is saving people out of the kingdom of darkness for a reason. Well, let me ask you this. Paul says in verse 1, this is going to happen in the later days. Later times, this is going to happen. I wonder when that's going to start. When do the later days start? When do the later times start? Maybe it's next year. Or maybe it's the next millennia or something. What do you think? Guys, later times is synonymous with last days and last hour. So if you want to know when are those later times, just look up last days and last hours. And what do we find? In Acts 2, the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came down, Peter quoted Joel's prophecy. And he said, in the last days it shall be, God declares, I'll pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. When did that happen? That happened 2,000 years ago. Those are the last days. Hebrews 1-2 says, in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. The incarnation, most people date the last days by the appearance of Jesus on the earth, instituted the later times, the last days. 2 Thessalonians 2 says this, the mystery of lawlessness, Satan is called, or the Antichrist is called the man of lawlessness or the man of sin. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And 2 Thessalonians is one of the early epistles. And last, 1 John 2.18, John says there, children, it's the last hour, 2,000 years ago, the whole age of the church. You've heard that Antichrist is coming. He's going to come. Well, many antichrists have already come. And because of that, we know it's the last hour. We're in it. 
We're not waiting for it. It's here and it's been here. So guys, so there's a powerful foe that opposes God and God's church and God's children on earth that opposes the truth, the saving message about who Jesus is and what He's done and where our hope really rests. How do you and I, if the devil is in the church, and he is, and he has been all along, how do you and I protect ourselves from deception? What do we do so that we're inoculated to deception, to doctrines of demons? What do we do so that when wormwood or screw tape whispers in our ear something, that we've got the truth there instead? What does this look like? How do we get there? How do we stay safe from this kind of deception? We could have a lengthy list here. I'm going to keep this short. I'm going to start at verse 3 because this is in the text. The first thing I'd say is this. Simply recognize God's goodness, enjoy His provisions, and give thanks. I know this sounds simple, but this is in the text here. Isn't that interesting? Paul doesn't try and raise, he's not overexcited here. In, in the face of these guys saying, uh, don't taste, don't touch, Paul, Paul says, guess what? God's good, and everything He created is good. And He created everything good, why? So that you could enjoy it. And when you enjoyed it, what were you going to do in a relationship with God? You were going to turn and you were going to give Him thanks. Is that cool or what? I'm thinking just of last night and the dance at the Isleths and what a great... The day was lovely. The weather was great. The dancing, I thought was a little iffy last night. But not bad. Everybody seemed to be having a good time. You know, we can go to those things and we can absolutely enjoy those. No, no downside. And turn and thank God because God is the one who created pleasures. God is the one who created everything good. God is the one who created us to be able to enjoy things in the first place. So in this context, Paul says, recognize this. Recognize who your father is and what's true of him. Satan's temptation is always, I have a better deal. Satan's temptation is always some version of God is holding out on you. And Paul says, no. The opposite is true. Every pleasure you've ever had is because God created things good and He designed us so that we could experience pleasure and joy. Every illegitimate pleasure is simply a degradation of something God created for us to experience and enjoy. The possibility of illicit pleasures is because there are real ones created by God. There's no downside there. The first thing is recognize how good God is. And that every day and every breath and the sunshine and the breeze and the food and sex and children and families and relationships, it's all good. And God's put it there for us to enjoy. There's no asceticism here. That's the first thing. There's a quote, by the way, you can read later at home about uh, Screwtape's version on pleasure. Also, you can read Psalm, 30, or Psalm 36 talks about God's pleasure. Psalm 16 does the same thing. But listen, no one does, no one can love you and I more than the God and Savior who created us, created us for His pleasure, created us for His pleasure, and then redeemed us back to eternal pleasures in Him and with Him. Guys, the pleasures that wait us in the eternal day that's ahead, we can't imagine, we can't fathom. 
We'll only know them when we get there, but it'll be worth knowing. The other thing is this. Understand the pleasures in knowing Christ Himself. It's not that God just gave us things to enjoy and He's back in the background someplace. Remember, we're always called to fellowship. So Jesus says in John 17.3 that eternal life, and if you take that apart, the eternal is life to the ages, life that never ends. But life is also qualitative. It's not mere existence. It's the experience of what is qualitatively life or joy. Well, Jesus says that eternal life is knowing God and Jesus. So we enjoying the stuff God gives us is great. I was listening to teaching a week ago and the guy said, how do you know when you love God and you don't just love what God gives you? And his answer was this, when he takes them away. Generally in suffering, of course. How do you know you love God? Well, if God removes those pleasures, those good things, or some element of those from me, do I still love God Himself? Not just what He gave me. That's a good way to see it. But the ultimate pleasures, friends, they're, they're found in God Himself. In knowing Christ. In knowing God, that's where the ultimate pleasures are. Everything else is sort of subsidiary from who God is and what He's done. So the more we know our Father and the more we know our Savior, the closer we stay to truth, the less open we are to deception. Along that line, of course, is to cling to the Scriptures. I know this is my drumbeat, but guys, if you don't know the Bible, you don't know God. If you don't know the Bible, you don't know Jesus. You don't, and you can't. Because the revelation of God to us on earth is in His Word, and His Spirit makes that real to our hearts. When Jesus is tempted, when Satan is after Him in Luke 4, how does He respond to every temptation? What keeps the Son of Man safe from sin as a man on earth? What does He do to every temptation Satan throws at Him? He quotes God's Word. And He stands on the truth of it. Can you and I face temptation the same way? We can if we know the Scriptures. If we know God's Word. If we don't know the truth, friends, we're open to deception because we don't know one from the other. So to cling to God's Word, to meditate it, to memorize it, this isn't simply to make us smarter. It's not make it to make us puffed up with pride. I know the Bible. It's because God's life, the truth for us, is in the pages of His Word. That's where we stay safe from deception. The last is this. It's simply to be spiritually alert. You know, sometimes, sometimes spiritually, we're like a, uh, a nice Sunday afternoon maybe, or maybe a Sunday morning, where the breeze is blowing or the music's wafting and we just want to slowly close our eyes and just nod off. Have you ever done that and you wake up with a start and you realize, I nodded off. And I don't know how, I have no idea how much time just elapsed. It might be a second, it might be a minute, it might be an hour. I have no idea. I nodded off. We can't afford to nod off spiritually. Listen, these are two quotes from the book. Screw tape letters. A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all. And more amusing. A moderate religion. I go to church occasionally. I write a check occasionally. I sort of do the right things. That's a moderated religion. It's worthless against spiritual deception. Or how about this? The safest road to hell, Screwtape says, is the gradual one. 
Gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Don't get upset. Don't rock the boat. You just will quietly, slowly just walk our way into hell. Or friends, Christians, we will quietly, slowly waste our life away. It's a short time. We want to maximize our time on earth. Guys, we can live, we can know and be held in the truth. We can enjoy the pleasures of God and the pleasures in God by simply accepting life and forgiveness of sins in Jesus and then thoughtfully, circumspectly, thankfully living out the faith in the household of God, the church of Jesus Christ. Father, we want to acknowledge Your goodness and grace to us. Lord, Your full provision, the riches and the fullness of Your grace poured out for us in Your Son. Lord, Jesus is the head of a new human race leading us onward into a new eternal day and a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness, joy, peace forever and ever is the norm. Would You help us to live circumspectly, wisely, shrewdly, Lord. Would You help us to invest in You, Your things, and the truth. Keep us safe from the devil. Help us to support and encourage each other in this walk of faith. In Jesus' name, Amen.